Well, good morning. <laughs> the title of this morning's message is, It Was All Symbolic of Jesus. This morning, we are continuing to look into the book of Hebrews, and we will begin with the first part of chapter 9. The ninth chapter is quite lengthy, and there is no way you can cover all of chapter 9 in, in one sitting. It's like 28 verses. It's, it's a lot. I was going to aim for 14, get half of it, and nope, <laughs> 10. We're going to go for 10 verses. <laughs> In the ninth chapter, the author of Hebrews is continuing to make the case to his readers that Jesus is better. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant. And he ministers in a better tabernacle because Jesus himself is better. Because Jesus is, in fact, God. <laughs> you can't get any better than God. <laughs> he is God who has come into the physical realm, wrapped in humanity, in order to reveal himself to us and to make reconciliation for us so that we, too, can know God and be one with God, just like Jesus is. Now, the Old Covenant never offered those under the Old Covenant, a personal and unhindered access to God, like we have through Jesus. Which is why the Hebrew baby believers were struggling to accept that Jesus by himself was enough to give them an everlasting right standing with God and the privilege of living continuously in God's presence. The everlasting right standing with God must have sounded too good to be true <laughs> to those Hebrew baby believers. How could Jesus all by himself be enough? I mean, under the old covenant, they had lambs slain every day, twice a day on their behalf. So how could Jesus' one sacrifice be sufficient? How could just Jesus really be enough? Now, we have to remember that these Hebrew baby believers did not understand their everlasting righteousness <laughs> because under the Old Covenant, they never had an everlasting righteousness. They never had a continuous right standing with God. Theirs was always temporary. You're right with God until you fail. That's the Old Covenant. So this idea of always being right with God was hard to grasp. And it is a lot for the church today. You're like, no, that ain't right. <laughs> but that's really what the book of Hebrews is really all about, is explaining to these born-again Hebrew baby believers what Jesus really did, what he really accomplished, how big and how great and how grand is Jesus. Because once you get it, once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> and once you understand it, you never want to go back either. <laughs> so this everlasting righteousness didn't exist under the Old Covenant. So the Hebrew baby believers were still trying to mix the Old Covenant laws and sacrifices with their belief in Jesus as Messiah. These Hebrew baby believers had been dull of hearing regarding the voice of the Holy Spirit. They hadn't been used to that idea. They were always listening to the law. And now this new life says, no, no, you can hear God. You do hear God. Even if you don't recognize that you hear God, you hear God. <laughs> 
but you got to practice. <laughs> they hadn't yet transferred their allegiance all over to Jesus. They were still trying to let the rules rule over them instead of letting the Holy Spirit rule in and through them. So they needed to let the Holy Spirit persuade their hearts of the truths of the new covenant reality. They needed to renew their minds with the truths that the author is presenting to them. They needed the Holy Spirit to convince them in their hearts that it was actually safe to let go of the earthly temple with its laws and regulations and sacrifices. And this is why the book of Hebrews is so important for us today. Because believers today experience the same kind of uncertainty. Do you ever remember you didn't go to church on a day for probably not a good reason, but you just didn't feel like going? But the guilt and the shame and the I'm bad, it really wasn't worth it. <laughs> because when you know when you got to church the next year, they're going to say, why were you missing? Can't be missing. <laughs> <laughs> so believers today still have the same kind of uncertainty. Is God happy with me? Is he not happy with me? If I stay home, I remember one time years ago, I've always gone to church far away from my house for whatever reason. <laughs> and I have, was working third shift. So on the weekend, you know how your schedule is all kind of wacko. And I woke up late. I went, oh, no, Lord, I'm going to miss church. He said, it's okay. Go right back to sleep. And I, what? <laughs> aren't you mad that I overslept he goes no don't worry about it just go back to sleep I was like oh okay <laughs> it seems that that day the pastor decided to present a very short message he got up and he addressed his congregation and he said God loves you and that was it <laughs> and I was like <laughs> I mean there's a lot to that but that's just it he could have added a lot more <laughs> and I was like oh I really didn't miss anything then did I <laughs> he exactly he already knew there's no reason to drive an hour and a half to hear God loves you <laughs> unless you're going to elaborate <laughs> <laughs> so, God knows. I love that. So, to answer the question, how can Jesus be enough? The author begins this with the last verse of chapter 8, which says, Hebrews 8.13, In speaking of a new covenant, he, God, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is one of the primary things the Hebrew baby believers were struggling with. They hadn't yet let go of the first covenant because they really didn't understand that it had become obsolete. In other words, it no longer actually worked. Have you ever had an obsolete software on your computer? <laughs> no matter how hard you try to get that thing to work, <laughs> it won't. It has to be up to date. Well, this is their problem. They had an outdated software program that no longer worked, and they needed the updated version. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> the old covenant no longer worked. It no longer accomplished anything on their behalf. In fact, participation in temple worship was actually an act of unbelief and fear. 
not an act of faith and love. That says everything. <laughs> We're not supposed to be walking in fear. So the author prepares his reader to receive the truths of the new covenant by, first of all, showing them that all of the old covenant became obsolete at God's word and through God's hand. Today, many will say, yes, the ceremonial law is obsolete. We don't have to take lambs, but we do got to keep the Ten Commandments. No. Keeping the Ten Commandments does not make you right with God. Only Jesus makes you right with God. And the way God works in the New Covenant is he empowers you to walk in love, which will look like you're trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Only better, because love is higher. Love is self-sacrificing. Ten Commandments, uh-uh. <laughs> That's actually a lower standard. So he wants them to understand that it's not just the ceremonial law. They were kind of backwards from today. It's not just we don't have to eat kosher. We also got to stop taking lambs to the temple. <laughs> God was the one who told them that a new covenant was coming and that it would not be like the Mosaic covenant. God never meant for believers in Jesus to try to smoosh the two covenants together, which is why the author is trying to explain to these Hebrew baby believers that they needed to let go of all of the old covenant as a means of being in right standing with God. We don't throw out the first half of the Bible, <laughs> but that's not where our life comes from. It comes from Christ. These baby believers needed to fully embrace the magnificence of Christ and his everlasting righteousness as a gift of God's grace. And one of the reasons they could let go of law-keeping for righteousness was by understanding that the law wasn't just set aside. It was fulfilled by Christ. So God didn't throw it out. He just completed it. <laughs> he got it all taken care of. Within the Old Covenant, God had painted pictures and clues and types and shadows of what Jesus would come to fulfill. And all the types and shadows were always meant to point the Hebrews of the New Covenant to the reality that God really did bring in a new covenant that worked completely different than the old. The old covenant only provided for one man, the high priest, chosen by God and prepared according to God's direction to enter into the Holy of Holies on earth and only one day a year. And in order to enter the Holy of Holies, they had to bring the blood of bulls and goats to make atonement for their own sin by making the required sacrifice for sin. And the required Payment was the death of a substitute. So only one man out of the whole nation of Israel experienced the manifest presence of God. And even then, it was in fear and trembling. They didn't go into the Holy of Holies with boldness and confidence. <laughs> they didn't run in there going, Father God, oh, I so love you. No, they would have been struck dead. <laughs> they went in there merely hoping that they had done everything just right so that they wouldn't drop dead. Going into God's presence was scary because they were so different from God. This, of course, is exactly the opposite of what the new covenant provides. Under the new covenant, we can draw near to God and march right into the spiritual heavenly holy holies at any given moment 
even if we've just sinned. (laughs) In fact, that's the perfect time to talk to God about our failure because he wants to help us make our wrongs right. He doesn't get mad at us, and he doesn't send us to our room. Instead, he wants us to draw close to him and let him help us stop being stupid. (laughs) But under the old covenant, no other Hebrews ever got to enter in, even into the holy place, the first half, much less the second half, the most holy place. And that's because access to God had limits back then. But not because that's what God wanted for his people. God always wanted his people to know him and to live in his goodness. That is the desire of God's heart. But their covenant only provided a covering over of sin, not a purging of sin. So spiritually, they were incompatible. They still had an ice cube type of nature. (laughs) And God still had a sunshine type of nature. (laughs) And when you bring those two natures together, it doesn't work out so well for the ice cubey people. <laughs> the old covenant only provided an external right standing with God because the way into the real heavenly holy of holies had not yet been made manifest, which is exactly what the author of Hebrews is about to tell us in chapter 9. And we can see this beginning with verse 6, and I have it for you in the Passion Translation. It's a little bit wordy, but I still like it. (laughs) So, with this prescribed pattern of worship, the priests would routinely go in and out of the first chamber to perform the religious duties. And the high priest was permitted to enter into the holiest sanctuary of all only once a year. And he could never enter without first offering sacrificial blood for both his own sins and the sins of the people. Now, the Holy Spirit uses the symbols of this pattern of worship to reveal that the perfect way of holiness had not yet been unveiled. For as long as the tabernacle stood, it was an illustration that pointed to our present time of fulfillment, demonstrating that the offerings and animal sacrifices had failed to perfectly cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. Because the temple sacrifices could not change a man's heart, neither could it cleanse his conscience. When the heart is cleansed, so is the conscience. Years ago, I led a a young man to the Lord. He came to church regularly, but he had stayed late at church one day, and I went over and said, what's going on? And we talked, and I was like, have you ever asked Jesus to come live inside of you? (laughs) Well, he believed that Jesus was real, and he believed that God was real, and really he was there for the youth group. (laughs) He hadn't ever made that commitment, so we prayed. He had invited Christ to come in. And then after we prayed, he looked up and he says, I feel so light. <laughs> I said, uh-huh. That weight of guilt, the weight of shame is gone. You feel light and clean because you are. That's what Jesus does. He makes us clean and light. So now, when we find ourselves with a guilty conscience, because it still happens, our conscience can be used by God. (laughs) It can also run amok with accusation. (laughs) Got to be able to distinguish conscience, natural thinking, Holy Spirit, correct thinking. (laughs) So when we find ourselves with a guilty conscience, we need only to remember that Jesus has already borne our sin and guiltiness 
on the cross. And whatever we did wrong is not being held against us by God. Now, whoever you did something wrong against might hold it against you. <laughs> but God's not going to. We are still in right standing with God. Also, a guilty conscience is a conscience that condemns us and tells us that we're bad or we're stupid or we're the problem. I prayed for years, fix me, Jesus, just fix me. <laughs> I thought he never answered the prayer. I didn't know he fixed me the day he moved in. <laughs> That's when he fixed us. Our who is good and pure and holy and righteous. Our who is one spirit with the living Christ. Our who can never be made dirty. Our who can never be made stupid. Our who can never be made bad. Now our actions and our thinking <laughs> can get into that train of trouble. But that's what our conscience usually does. It tells us we're bad, that we're the problem. If we're having a problem with sin, it's because we don't know the truth in a certain area has nothing to do with who we are anymore. Sinners sin. Saints sometimes sin because they don't know everything. <laughs> the Holy Spirit will never tell us we're bad. He will never tell us that we need to be fixed. He'll never tell us that there's something wrong with who we are. He'll only ever point us to Christ, our righteousness, and then truth. If I'm sinning in a particular area, then there is a truth that I have not yet grasped. So the Holy Spirit, he will absolutely correct you. He will absolutely warn you. <laughs> Don't say it. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> but he's never going to beat us up. Because that does not work the righteousness of God in us. We are always acceptable to God because of Jesus. But not everything we do or think is acceptable to God. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit is happy to tell us when we're wrong and how we can think differently. Verse 10 of chapter 9. For this old pattern of worship was a matter of external rules and rituals concerning food and drink and ceremonial washings, which was imposed upon us until the appointed time of heart restoration had arrived. And again, heart restoration and a clean and clear conscience go hand in hand. Uh, not too long ago, Satan brought up something I did, a stupid thing I did when I was a teenager. He was like, see, you're bad. <laughs> see, you are really pathetic, Satan. <laughs> you're still trying the same old tactics over and over. There's something wrong with you. Nope. Free and clear. Free and clear. <laughs> now, there's a lot in these five verses that we just read. But what I want to emphasize to you is that everything under the Old Covenant was symbolic of what was going to come through Christ. Everything was a picture pointing to a greater reality that would come through a new covenant. A covenant where God would not remember their sins and iniquities against them ever again. Verse 12 of chapter 8. I will be merciful, which means kind and gracious, to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. A Jew would say, what? God's not going to be merciful to your unrighteousness. <laughs> That's not right. That's not fair. <laughs> God's not going to just overlook the fact that you did something wrong. <laughs> 
That's not right. That's not fair. Except for grace. That's favor. That's right. We have God's favor because Jesus has already paid for all of our stupid mistakes. <laughs> That's why he doesn't remember them against us. They're already been paid for. Unfortunately, much of the church still believes that the new covenant operates just like the old, even though God specifically told them that the new covenant would not function like the old. <laughs> because in the new covenant, God doesn't just cover over our sin. He actually spiritually kills us off by baptizing us into the death of Christ. And then he raises us up into new life as a new creation with a new heart and a new spirit. And then he marries himself to us. <laughs> There's no reason for him to count our sins against us. So the new covenant operates completely different than the old. I know you've heard it a million times. But when we fall short of God's glorious perfection, this is what we need to remember. My sins can no longer separate me from my Father or my Jesus or their favor. God is not mad at me because of my stupidity. He only wants to help me to stop being stupid. <laughs> He's always for us and never against us. The Holy Spirit is our helper, not our condemner. <laughs> he will warn you about stupid stuff, but he's not going to condemn you. He's not going to attack you or try to get you to punish yourself. I used to beat myself up regularly. It's a good thing nobody could see the spiritual bruises. <laughs> Under the old covenant, people managed their sin debt. But under the new, Jesus has already paid all of mankind's sin debt in full so that God cannot hold our sins against us, not even our future sins, because he has already legally transferred all of our sin debt to Jesus. And he did this on purpose. This way, sin can never separate us from God again, regardless of how stupid we are. And thank you, Jesus, we don't have to stay stupid. <laughs> we will forever be one spirit with the Lord, even if we occasionally do something stupid. And yes, all sin is stupid, because it can never bring forth the goodness of God in our lives, which is what our hearts actually want. Now, I want us to turn our attention to the beginning of this chapter. Again, I have it for you in the Passion Translation, but I do want to point out that this translation adds the word you when it really sh shouldn't have. They should have used the word them <laughs> because only the priests ever got to see any of the inside of the tabernacle. None of these Hebrew baby believers ever saw the inside of the holy place or the most holy place. So when the translator translated this, they made it sound like it was speaking to us. It's not. It's actually speaking to the Hebrew baby believers about the priests. But if you don't know that, it can be misinterpreted. So I have fixed it for us. <laughs> Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, in the first covenant, there were specific rules for worship, including a sanctuary on earth to worship in. When they entered the tabernacle, they would first come to the holy chamber where they would find the lampstand and the bread of his presence on the fellowship table. 
Then, as they passed through the next curtain, they would enter into the innermost chamber called the holiest sanctuary of all. It contained the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant Mercy, which was a wooden box covered entirely with gold. And placed inside the Ark of the Covenant Mercy was the golden jar with mystery manna on the inside. Aaron's resurrection rod, which had sprouted, and the stone tablets engraved with the covenant laws. On top of the lid of the ark were two cherubim, angels of splendor, with outstretched wings overshadowing the throne of mercy. But now is not the time to discuss further the significant details of these things. When I read that, I thought, then why did you bring it up? <laughs> this is a lot of stuff you just went through, and now you're saying we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> I think it might be because the author needs his audience to realize that they already believe in the reality of things they cannot see with their physical eyes. How did the average Hebrew know what was in the holy place? They were never allowed to go in and see it. <laughs> and nobody could take a picture of it for them. <laughs> the priest in the Old Testament never gave a tour of the tabernacle. <laughs> And the priests working at the temple that was standing when this uh, letter was written, they never gave tours either. And if Israel ever does get to build its temple, you know what? There won't be any tours in it <laughs> because they think Gentiles are unclean. Nobody will ever get to see that what's in there unless somebody takes pictures. So how could a Hebrew believe that there was really a real lampstand and a table of showbread and an altar of incense in the holy place. How would they have confidence that it was really in there? Primarily because God's word said so. And of course, they could ask the priests to testify to its reality. But the ordinary Hebrew never got to see any of it. That's why we don't know how all these things actually look. We just have the descriptions. So how are these Hebrew baby believers supposed to believe in a high priest that they can't see? Who lives in a sanctuary that they can't see? And who offered a sacrifice that they didn't see and didn't participate in? How are they supposed to believe all this stuff? <laughs> the same way the Old Testament Hebrews believed that the holy place contained a lampstand a table of showbread, and an altar of incense, because God said so. He said so in his word. We don't need a priest to testify to that. We have the Holy Spirit who testifies to the reality and the truths of the new covenant. Even though the author doesn't expound on these types of shadows, I wanted to stop and do a little expounding. <laughs> Just because it's kind of cool that so much in the Old Testament is actually a picture or type and shadow. Of Jesus. For starters, the author keeps talking about the original tabernacle. The original tabernacle foreshadowed Jesus. The tabernacle was surrounded by a white linen fence, indicating that God was holy and pure and altogether different from sinful men. And this, of course, is definitely our Jesus. Hebrews 7.26 For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, 
and made higher than the heavens. This is what he's talking about. He's using an analogy from the old. Jesus was separate from sinners. He was? He was always touching them and hugging on them and eating with them. <laughs> but he was separate in his holiness. His who was never dirty. <laughs> the tabernacle was always placed in the center of Israel's camp, and every Israelite tent continuously faced the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was always in the center, and everybody else was around it, and everybody's face always pointed to the tabernacle. Even so, our face is to always be toward our Christ, who is our life and the center of our life. The tabernacle was also called the meeting place before it became known as the tabernacle, and it was where God met with man, Moses in particular. Hebrews 7.25 Wherefore, he is able to save, save, heal, deliver, provide, and protect, and make whole them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus is the meeting place where God and man meet. When you look up the word intercessor, it will tell you that, yeah, it can mean to go to somebody to intercede for somebody else. But primarily, the job of an intercessor is to bring two conflicting parties together. To bring them into one minute. <laughs> That's what Jesus does forever. He keeps us one with the Father. This, of course, is exactly what Jesus does for us. He joins himself, us, to himself and the Father. Neither Jesus nor the Father will ever let us go. I love that scripture in John where Jesus has us by one hand and the Father has us by the other hand. <laughs> and he says, you ain't never getting away, baby. <laughs> Scream and holler all you like. You're still mine. <laughs> the tabernacle had only one entrance, one doorway into the tabernacle. You couldn't go under the white linen fence and you couldn't go over the white linen fence. You could only approach God through the one gate or the one door. John chapter 10, starting with verse 7. Then Jesus said unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man shall enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Just like with the tabernacle, <laughs> you can't get to Jesus <laughs> any other way <laughs> but through Jesus. You can't get to the Father. And that's what Jesus said. He said, everything that came before me was a robber. Religion is a robber. <laughs> It's not for us. It just robs us when we try to make ourselves what God wants us to be, when in fact he has already made us what he wants us to be. The tabernacle was not outwardly beautiful. <laughs> in fact, it was kind of homely, <laughs> being covered over with goat's hair and ram skins and badger skins. And in Isaiah, we find these words, Isaiah 53, 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground, he hath no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty 
that we should desire of him. If we had seen Jesus in his transfiguration, everybody would have been impressed. <laughs> because the real Jesus came up and out. His real who was visible, physically visible. And the disciples were like, wow. But did everybody get to see it? No, only a few. <laughs> the point is, you look at the tabernacle, you think, why would I want to go into there? What, how, do I, how do I know God is in there? God was faithful. He would manifest his presence through a cloud or through fire, but that's the only way they knew. So even Jesus referred to himself as the temple. We see this in John chapter 2 and verse 19. Jesus answered them and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they didn't like what Jesus said. <laughs> Jesus was talking in code. <laughs> He's like, you don't get it. I am the tabernacle. Everything you think you want in this temple, this is who I am. I am the literal, the real temple. This is just fake. <laughs> this just points to me. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the type and shadow of the old covenant tabernacle. And you notice the Hebrews here doesn't tell them to look at the temple. He says, no, I want you to go back to how it started in the beginning. When in your midst, every, your life revolved around God. And everywhere God went, you went. <laughs> that wasn't the case when the temple came into being. See, they changed the temple. And they made it permanent, but then they didn't live around it. It wasn't the center of their life. So he had to say, no, let's forget about this temple business and go back to the tabernacle. So then the author skips over the bronze altar where the sacrifices were offered and also the bronze laver where the priests practiced cleansing rituals before entering into the tabernacle. He doesn't mention them, but when the tabernacle, you went in through the gate and then there was the altar, and then there was the brass laver of the bronze laver. And then he went into the holy places. He just skips right over that. And I thought, I'm not going to. Because <laughs> it all pictures Jesus. <laughs> For our understanding, the bronze altar foreshadows the cross, the place where sin received its just reward, death. Bronze speaks of judgment. And the sacrifices on the altar that the priests could partake of produced a sweet-smelling fragrance. And we can see this in Leviticus chapter 3, verse 5. And Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is upon the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And we can see the fulfillment of this in Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and hath given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Everything. And that's why it's important because so many of us want to hang on to the way things were done on, under the Old Covenant and the beliefs of the Old Covenant and the doing to become of the Old Covenant. And when we understand, no, all of it was supposed to point us to Christ. We can let go if we know its purpose. It was to point us to Christ. Now we can let go of it. Jesus' sacrifice was also foreshadowed 
in the brass laver where the priests washed before they entered the tabernacle. When you're cutting up a lot of, a lot of animals, you get all messy. <laughs> and you can't go into the Holy of Holies all messy, so you had to stop and wash. <laughs> um, in uh, Titus 3, 5, it says this, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We still see the same concept. This was supposed to point these baby Hebrew believers and even believers today to the truth that Jesus fulfilled it all. Here we can see in these scriptures both the cleansing by the blood and the operation of the Holy Spirit as pictured by the water. It all points to Jesus. Next, the author points out that the lampstand, he points out the lampstand and the, the showbread, the table of showbread. The lampstand was made of pure gold. It's the only thing in the holy place that was made of pure gold. That's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> we know that pure gold always points to deity, royalty, and wealth. <laughs> so the lampstand was made of pure gold and in the form of a tree. It was the only source of light. I love that. I don't think I ever really thought about it. I, I, I've heard this for years. But it, it was completely dark in the tabernacle. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face kind of dark. <laughs> Have you ever tried to witness to somebody who's living in darkness and you're trying to make them see and they just can't? <laughs> the only source of light is Jesus. The only source of truth is Jesus. The only source of life is Jesus. This is what the lampstand represented, the light and the life of God. The oil in the lamp symbolized the Holy Spirit, and the stand itself represented the tree of life that Adam and Eve ignored, <laughs> which is, of course, Jesus. Jesus himself said this, then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You see, we read it with our Gentile mentality. We don't understand the subtext. That he's saying, you have a lampstand that you think is the light of the world, but you, here's the real lampstand. Here's the real tree of life. I am the only source of real life. You can't get life or light apart from me. And then the showbread or the bread of presence. I like calling it the, the bread of the presence. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> uh, it was placed on a table made of, made of acacia wood that was covered in gold. Always you see the humanity and the divinity, that which is natural, that which is supernatural. And this table also held containers of wine. Usually we don't, when people talk about it, they don't say, hey, there's bread and wine over here. <laughs> but if you have bread, you've got to have wine. <laughs> there was always to be 12 loaves or cakes of bread on the table at all times. The bread was set in the holy place for one week, and then it had to be replaced with fresh bread. The bread that was being removed had to be eaten by the priests while they were inside the tabernacle. Here we see the bread and wine within the holy place. Also, it was said that the showbread never actually became stale. 
it was just as fresh as the day they put it there. Because I always thought, you're all eating stale bread? <laughs> no, God would miraculously preserve it for his people. That they would have fresh bread. It was uh, an offering unto the Lord that they got to take back again. So it was always miraculously fresh. In John chapter 6, Jesus tells his audience that he is the bread come down from heaven. Beginning with John 6.32. And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am, I am. And that's probably what he was doing. I am, <laughs> I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. You know what I want to add there? And they won't have to work real hard at being holy either. <laughs> Nothing can satisfy. Religion never satisfies. Religion is a ladder of you trying really hard to work your way up to be good enough for God to like you. <laughs> he said, but if you come to me, you'll be satisfied. Next, the author mentions the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, which he writes as both being inside the most holy place, which is sometimes you see that in scripture. He says, the altar of incense is right in there with the Ark of the Covenant, but it actually wasn't. <laughs> it was right up against the curtain. <laughs> it was considered to be most holy too because the incense would rise and go into the Holy of Holies. But it was actually outside. The reason we know this is because the priests had to change the incense or burn incense morning and evening. And since these priests were never allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, that means this has to be in the first part. And the incense always represented the prayers of the nation of Israel ascending to God. In fact, often, because they knew the priest went every morning, every evening to offer incense, that's when the people would go towards the tabernacle or towards the temple and do their praying then, because they had a physical representation that their prayers were ascending to God. So the altar of incense is right up next to the curtain, which is where it should be. This is a type of intercession of Christ. It is through Christ and his blood that our prayers are heard. I love where the Apostle Paul uses the word intercession, where the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. I love that. In other words, he edits us. <laughs> if we go to praying stupid stuff... <laughs> Holy Spirit says, settle down. <laughs> nope, not passing that one on to the Father. <laughs> but it is a type of intercessions. It is through Christ and the Holy Spirit that our Father hears our prayers. The Father used to burn the incense could only come from the brazen altar. Do you remember that story where Aaron's sons decided they didn't have to follow God first day on the job? <laughs> They're like, we don't need to use a fire from the altar. We'll make our own. Nope. <laughs> that didn't work out well for them. <laughs> the reason they had to use the fire that came from the altar is because the blood of the animals would have fallen onto the fire and the wood and sanctified it. 
even the fire needed to be cleansed with blood. So even the prayers of the people needed to be purified with blood, with the blood of a sacrifice. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so it's no wonder that we approach our Father in the name of Jesus, because it is only through his blood that we have access to the Father. Next, the author mentions the Ark of the Covenant, which held Aaron's staff, a container of manna, and the stone tablets with ten commandments. Aaron's staff speaks of God verifying his choice for high priest. There was a big updo, a big whoop-de-doo by people who were not priests. They were not of Aaron's tribe. They decided that they were just as holy as everybody else <laughs> and that they could be priests too. And so lots of bad things happened to them. But what God did <laughs> was he said, okay, this is what I want you to do. All you people who think you want this job, <laughs> I want a staff from one leader in your tribe that has his name on it, and their staff always had their name on it. It always usually had their tree, their lineage on it. He says, you bring 12 staffs from each tribe, and you set them before the Lord, and then tomorrow, whosoever staff buds is my choice for high priest. What are the chances that a dead piece of wood is going to bring forth life? <laughs> it was a miracle, right? And it was God's way of saying, no, this is the chosen one, the true high priest. Hmm, do we know of anybody who died <laughs> and was brought back to life, <laughs> declaring and showing that he is the one that God has chosen? But yes, I think we do. <laughs> the manna is also a type of Christ as the bread from heaven. And we can see this in the same passage in John chapter 6. I couldn't find a good picture of manna. So I have this guy out scooping up manna as it falls from the sky. Because <laughs> that's just fun. <laughs> John chapter 6, beginning with verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is why we do communion, so that we can eat Jesus. <laughs> and we can remember Jesus. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That's our Jesus. And the last thing inside the Ark of the Covenant was the tablets of the covenant, which we call the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were God's first words <laughs> to the Israelites written down. <laughs> that was their part of the covenant. They didn't have a grant covenant like we have, where God's responsible for everything. Theirs was, you do your part and I'll do mine. And so this was what their part contained. But 
this actually was only ever supposed to point us to the word, the true word, the living word. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Also, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of both soul and spirit and of both the joints and the marrow and is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. 13, and there is not a created thing that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Most of the time, people want to use this as a saying that this living word is the written word of God. No, the written word of God is the written word of God. It's the living word that looks into our heart. It is the living word that knows our intents. It was a type and shadow to say, this is the word on stone that brings forth death. But there is a living word coming who's going to bring you life, life from the dead. So it's always, always supposed to point them to Christ. And the last thing the author mentions is the mercy seat. And Jesus is also our mercy seat. The mercy seat is the place of propitiation. And we can see this truth in Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. I have it for you in the ESV version. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now you might be thinking, uh, where does it say Jesus is our mercy seat? The word propitiation is the Greek word hilasterion. It means the, the place of expiation. It is also the atoning victim, or specifically the lid of the ark in the temple. In other words, the mercy seat. So when this scripture says God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, he could have as well have literally said, and God put forward as our mercy seat by his blood. This is a place where God is satisfied that all of our sins have been paid for. Our Father is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is the atoning victim and the satisfactory payment for all sin. And he is the place where the blood was applied to our sin. In his body, he is our mercy seat. And we get a little hint of this truth in John chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, which says this. The context of this scripture is Resurrection Sunday, and Mary has gone looking for the body of Jesus. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. It paints a picture of the mercy seat found in the tabernacle. 
the blood was applied in the middle, and then the angels attend at each end. God let her see a picture that revealed this amazing truth, even though she didn't understand it at the time. In the same way, the Old Covenant painted these pictures for New Covenant believers, so that those who struggle to believe just how big and complete our salvation is can begin to see that our Father has orchestrated and brought forth by His own hand a totally new and different covenant that is so much better than the old because Jesus is better. When we see how perfectly our Father has orchestrated this so great salvation and how the old covenant only provided us with pictures of the better realities found in Christ, then we can be assured that we too can safely let go of the obsolete old covenant and embrace and rejoice in the better reality, which is Jesus. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word, that you reveal your orchestration. We re you reveal the big picture that we can't see all by ourselves. We thank you that you have provided these truths so that when we look back in scripture, we see your great hand. We see your great orchestration. We see your great love. We thank you, Father God, that you delight in showing us the pictures and bringing out of the pictures the truths that we didn't know were hidden there. We thank you, Father God, that the Word of God is a depth of treasure that we get to go in and find Jesus over and over and over again because Jesus really is better. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 833-632-1315, or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.